0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Tom, and I'll be reading from the Bible book of Genesis, uh, the third chapter in verses one through seven. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, "Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden?" The woman said to the serpent, "We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, "You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die."
1: Thanks, Tom. Morning, everybody. We began a brand new series last week on the covenant, talking about the covenant. Covenants are entered by faith, and all faith requires some doubt. So I'd like to spend just a moment, since faith is so important to understanding the covenant and entering the covenant, just a second at the beginning of this message to talk about the importance of some doubt that all faith requires. So I'm going to see if I can't. Um, visualize it this way. Again, demonstrate it this way. Actually, so who who here believes that I have a ten dollar bill in my hand? Who who believes that I might have a ten? Does anybody have enough faith in me? This young lady right over here in the green shirt for St. Patrick's Day, stand up, please, Courtney Clark, or Dozier. Dozier, Dozier. all right, all right. You married me. I know I did. So anyway. <laughs> we married you to marry this guy. But anyway, okay. You believe I have a $10 bill in my hand. Do you have not much faith in me? Okay. Yes. I want you all to watch this. I'm going to destroy Courtney's faith. Okay, we're going to destroy her faith right here. So, uh, Courtney, uh, since you're not on mic, unless you yelled into my cheek, we can't hear you. So you just have to shake your head, turn around, face everybody. Is that a $10 bill? Is that a $10 bill? Yes. $10 bill. Yes. Okay, I'm going to give that to you. Okay, Aww. that's yours is a gift. You can keep it and do something special on St. Patty's Day for it. Her. But here's the thing. I just destroyed her faith. She no longer has to have faith in me. She has it. It's, it's a done deal. It's there. She doesn't trust me anymore. She has the $10. It is a done deal. I want you to think about that. Thank you very much. How about a round of applause, Courtney? Courtney Dozier. Think about that a second. All faith requires some doubt. That's how relationships work. I want to read you a quote. You'll see it. It's it's on your uh, bulletin or you'll see it on the screen behind me. Maybe it's not in your bulletin. It's on the screen behind me. This this is what it says. It's a wonderful quote. Those who believe, they believe in God, but without passion in the heart, without anguish of mind, without uncertainty, without doubt, and even at times without despair, believe only in the idea of God and not in God himself. Should think about that a few times through. That's a, pretty, that's a pretty deep thought. I'd like to read something to you. Uh, it's uh, it's some, a book called Faith and Doubt. Actually, the book now is called No Doubts by John Ortberg. Wonderful book. I think if I could have ever written a book in my life, this would probably have been it. I feel like I've been trying to say this for the past 10 years, but I'm not smart enough to do that. So thank the Lord God sent somebody else to do it. Anyway, let me read you this story. I think of Agnes. From the time she was a young girl, Agnes believed. Not just believed, she was on fire. You know anybody who's on fire? She wanted to do great things for God. She wanted to love Jesus as he had never been loved before. She knew Jesus was with her and had an undeniable sense of him calling her. She wrote in her journal, My soul at present is in perfect peace and joy. She experienced a union with God that was so deep and so continual that it was to her a rapture. She left her home, became a missionary, and gave him everything. And then God left her. At least that is how it felt to her. "'Where is my faith?' she wondered. "'Even deep down, there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. "'My God, how painful is this unknown pain? "'I have no faith,' she tried to pray. "'I uttered words of community prayers "'and tried my best to get out of every word "'the sweetness that it has to give. "'But my prayer of union is not there any longer, "'and I no longer pray.'" On the outside, she worked, she served, she smiled. But she spoke of her smile as her mask, as a cloak that covers everything. This inner darkness and dryness and pain over the absence of God continued on year after year after year with only one brief respite for nearly 50 years of her life. Such was the secret pain of Agnes, who is better known as Mother Teresa. Somebody who experienced tremendous doubt, anguish, pain, and emptiness. From that, she inspired millions of people in their faith in Jesus Christ and inspired them with service. What is the deal with that? How does that work? What is that like? How could she have gone through all of that? Jude 22 says, "Be merciful to those who doubt." The Bible says, "Be merciful." to those who doubt it is very important for us in this series on covenant to understand what faith is and what it is not to define it to understand it we're going to talk more about it next week each week maybe at the beginning i'm going to give you a little something to think about when it talks in terms of faith and doubt and what all that means uh, hebrews 11 6 says without faith it is impossible to please god well here's a news alert for you without faith It is impossible to please anybody. Since spring is in the air, love is in the air, next week we're going to get a little romantic and see if we can't uh, demonstrate the importance of faith in relationships. Okay? All right. Well, the Bible isn't about many things. The Bible was about one thing. You might want to write that down. This is really important to focus about what is the Bible trying to say to us? The Bible isn't about many things. The Bible is about only one thing. Who knows the one thing the Bible is about from last week? It's about covenant. It's about a one thing called the covenant. We enter into a relationship with God through the covenant. And that is exercised by our faith in god now there are many different elements of a covenant so today we have a wedding ceremony and you know we're all fairly familiar if we somebody say hey, you want to go to a wedding we think okay there's going to be an exchange of rings there's going to be vows there's going to be a declaration of intention we understand there's certain elements to the wedding ceremony there are 10 elements to a covenant ceremony there's 10 elements to it and last week we covered three and the three we covered were they would exchange robes belts and weapons robes belts in weapons. And this week we're going to cover uh, two more. There's 10 of them. So we got to double up at some point because this series is only seven weeks long. And so I've asked my son, since he's home from college, if he would uh, assist us. So we'll get the boy up here and uh, he'll help us uh, make sense of this. So you want to write this down. The, the first element we want to talk about this morning is the walk of death. The walk... Of Death, and so what they would do is they 'd stand in a field like this right stand in a the field they 'd face each other, and they would they would take an animal and they would cut the animal in half and put a, a part over here and a part over here i wanted to I really want to demonstrate this for you because it helps to really get the visual whole thing. I was thinking about bringing my dog and I had the dog in the car. I had, the, I had the dog all the way in the car, and my wife stopped me. So, anyway, you, you have to use your mind. You have to use your imagination. All right. So they would do this. So um, let's put that visual up so they can see what we're getting ready to do. Okay. So they all right. So they cut the animal in half, and they would walk in a circular pattern around it. So I want you to imagine that there's a half of an animal here and a half of an animal here, and then Jonathan and I enter in a, in a covenant, and so we walk, and so we walk in a circular pattern. But as you can see, we looped our pattern together to mimic exactly what you see right there what now now what is that what is the deal with this walk of death what does it represent and why is it so very very important to us and critical for the harmony of our world all right it represents the death of independent living i am no longer independent i no longer just do my own thing i no longer just go out and think about you know me I, i what i do is it's about we It's not about me, it's about we, because now I'm in covenant. So before I make any decisions, I have to think of how is it going to affect my covenant partner. Before I make any decisions, say, hey, maybe we should have a conversation. We should talk about that. You know why? Because we're in covenant together. So it's not just about me. Independence is gone, the death of independent living. Now I'm thinking about how does it affect we. This is really important. This is this is what it is saying. So when Jesus says in John chapter fifteen, He says these words: he "says Apart from me, you can do nothing." I tell you, for years, I just, I just didn't get it. It wasn't sinking in. It might seem so simple. It wasn't simple to me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What does that mean? That's covenant language. He's saying you would never dream of going rogue on your covenant partner. You would never just think about me. You would always think about we. But always talk about. It. This is, look, this is one of the reasons Derek talked just a second ago about uh, volu- the volunteer fair with, that we're holding today. And giving an opportunity to sign up a volunteer team. Look, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of tactics that we could use to try to encourage you to sign up. We could tell you, oh, look, we we really have a deep need. We'll never get it done unless you help us, you know. So, so we could talk about the need. Or we can make you feel guilty and say, you know, you're going to hell unless you sign up for a team. Right? So we could use those <laughs> tactics, right? All those are good. But the, the, the biggest, the, the most the, the most important thing, here's the most, we're really after. Look, here's it. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, our covenant partner, is building his church. He's building his church. So if Jonathan... Lord help us could be Jesus for a moment, right? So if if Jonathan is Jesus and he's building the church, if I'm his covenant partner, I would never dream of not building the church with him because we're in covenant together. And what my covenant partner does, I do. And so the reason we have the volunteer pair is to give people an opportunity to exercise the covenant, to enter into the story of the covenant, to be a part of the covenant by working with your covenant partner together. A covenant partner would never dream of going rogue and doing their own thing. They wouldn't dream of, Hey, well, I'm sorry. I can't. They would be a part of the covenant. Okay, that's 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 what that's what happens there. Okay, Adam says when Eve is created, he says she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now, I'm a little squeamish about medical things that never like totally like you know, for my wife. And I notice for a lot of women, it's like, oh man, that resonates big time. For some reason, it doesn't resonate with me. And Let me tell you what it means. It's covenant language. You see this. In many places in the scripture where it talks about one flesh, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. This is covenant language. The Bible says the two shall become what? The two shall become one. That's covenant. That's covenant language. It's the death of independent living. Now, the circular pattern that Jonathan and I just walked a second ago. So we're going to transform that into this. And tell me if you recognize that. Oh, what is that? Has anybody ever seen that before? If you know, yell it out. Marriage. Marriage. You see that? It's a symbol for people getting married, right? So, this is what you. Do. Isn't in a wedding ceremony? Is there not a walk of death in a wedding ceremony? Is it- Did anybody here take a walk of death in a wedding ceremony? I mean, what do you think you're doing when you're walking back out of the church or wherever you got married? Well, you're taking the walk of death. It's over, baby. It's over. <laughs> So I had a buddy. I had a buddy of mine. He said, I talked to him the day after he got married. Uh, I talked to him the day after he got married. I said, hey, man, so how's it going? He said, John. He said, when I was walking out of the church, he said, I could, like, there was a noose around my neck, and every step I took, I could feel it getting tighter and tighter and tighter. And I said, that's awesome. That's exactly what's supposed to happen. That is what's supposed to happen. It's a wonderful thing. I know the buddy said to me, he said, John. I love my wife, but I hate being married. I said, yes, now you're, look, now you're getting it. There has to be. I want you to think, look, look, somebody say, oh, that's why I'm not getting married. Let's. Well, I want you to imagine for a second. Ready? I want you to imagine for a second a society where people refuse to take the walk of death. Imagine for a second a society where people think about me and not we. I want you to think about a society. Let's just say you had people refusing to take the walk of death and they were like in charge of our financial markets. And I said, you know what? I don't care that millions of people are going to lose money. It's all about me. And people lost their pensions and retirement funds and millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars while the people at the top got really super rich. What if we lived in a society like that? What if we lived in a society like that? What if we lived in a society where people said in marriage, everybody said, I'm not taking the walk of death. What would happen to marriages that explode in, 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 in children that are affected and on and on and on and ripples it goes? What about society like that where people refuse to take the walk to death? Now, look, I know these things I'm talking about is a lot more complicated. But what if we lived in a society where everybody refused to take the walk to death? Would that be a good place to live? No, it would not. This is extraordinarily practical, the walk of death. Now, since, um, since we have the boy up here, let's uh, use him for one other uh, element because we need to double up at some point. So we did the walk of death, which is what we're really going to talk about today. But I want to throw another one in there just for us to think about this. And this is called the mark on the body. This is what they would do. It's an element in the covenant ceremony. It's the mark on the body. Some of you, some of you guys are going to recognize this. Some of you did this as, as, as kids, some of you boys, particularly like you, you, you know, made a uh, Took something and, and, and poked your thumb and made it bleed and you had a buddy that poked your thumb and both of you were bleeding and you put it together and now we're what? What are we? We're blood brothers. We're blood brothers now. It's really cool. Well, here's what, here's what they would do. They would like cut into their, into their palms. They're bleeding. So I would cut and John would cut and we'd both be bleeding. And then we would do this. We would, it's called the striking of hands like this. And Job says, when Job was going through, he's a guy in the Bible who was really going through a really bad time, and he he, didn't, he, he couldn't find anybody to stand with them. He felt so alone and hurt and suffering. And he says this. He says, I can't find anybody who will strike hands with me. When he says this, he says, I can't find anybody to enter a covenant with me. Now, what does this look like? It's like a handshake. You know, a lot of people believe that that is where the handshake began. You all shake hands all the time. Did you know that A lot of people believe that this whole idea of the handshake came from the covenant. Okay? I'll give you something else. So what they would do after they cut their hand, they would rub dirt or charcoal, anything. Anything that would cause the mark that they made into their hand, that people would see it. Like, from a long way. So if you're ever in a situation where like you need to let people know, hey, man, I'm, you might see me. I'm here all by myself, but I'm not. I have a covenant partner. Man, he's big and bad, right? You, you know what I'm saying? You don't mess. Look at my covenant partner. So if you're there by yourself, you hold your hand up. From a far away, people would say, oh, whoa, look at that. He's, he's got a mark on his hand. That means he has a covenant partner that no matter what, the covenant partner is going to come and defend him. He's got a covenant partner. What am I doing? What am I doing? Could it be that the handshake, could it be that the wave of the hands all has its roots in the covenant? So practical, so real in our life. So many things that we use today, like the wedding ceremony, like the handshake, like the wave has its roots in God's word, the Bible of the covenant. Is that amazing? Is that amazing or what? So we're told in Isaiah 49, God says, I've engraved you, on the palms of my hand. And so why did Jesus Christ make such a big deal out of it in John chapter 20 when he says to Thomas, Thomas, look at my hands. Why is that? Why was that? Thomas, we're in covenant together. I've laid down my life for you. We're in covenant. Just look at the marks on my hands. Quite fascinating. All right, thank you. Everybody, big hand of applause, Jonathan. Going back to school today on spring break. It's uh, wonderful. We'll get some more sleep around the house. House won't be running 24 hours a day. Okay. Uh, we're going to talk about seven different covenants over the course of this series. So last week we talked about one. This week we'll talk about another. This week what we're going to talk about is, is basically Genesis chapter one, two, and three. It involves the covenant. With Adam. So Adam and Eve, right? They were given the first covenant, which we talked about last week, which was a conditional covenant. If you eat this tree, you will die. (laughs) It's pretty conditional. If you eat this tree, you will die. And so they suffered the consequences of that. That's the first conditional covenant. We'll talk about covenant number two today, the covenant with Adam and Eve. And that covenant was an unconditional covenant. Now you're dead. Now I'm going to send somebody who is going to crush the head of the serpent. It doesn't matter what you do. He's coming doesn't matter what you do. I'm sending him. It's an unconditional covenant. All right. I hear many people say to me that, you know what? I don't believe I hear him say it to me personally. I, I I see him on TV saying this, you know what? I don't believe in the Bible. And the reason I don't believe most popular response I hear is I don't believe in it because of Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3. I don't believe about the creation. I think it's all a bunch of fairy tales and there's not really good details in Genesis 1, 2 and 3. I think the whole thing is a myth. And what's the deal with this silly talking serpent? I mean, that's just so goofy. I don't like it. I don't believe in it. I think I think the whole thing's... That's why I can't believe. I can't believe because of Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3. So I'd like to talk for a few moments this morning about what, about what I feel like Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3. What is the intended meaning? Meaning of these chapters that we read in the Bible that are so very important and look I want to say this at the outset I hear a lot of people saying they don't believe in Genesis chapter 1 2 and 3 and then they walk around and act like they do Let's say it again I hear a lot of people say they don't believe it and the very people who say they don't believe it walk around and act with all Their heart and soul as if they do And that confuses me. What are we supposed to do with people like that? How are we supposed to figure this out? You don't believe in it? Why do you act like you do believe it? And why do you act like you believe it so much? What is the intended meaning of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3? Many people insist on looking at those three chapters and say, you know what, I refuse to look at this any other way other than I'm going to view it through the lens of my 21st century need for scientific details. And so that has to be the intended meaning, and that is the only way I'm going to look at it. I'm insisting that there must be 21st century scientific details in Genesis chapters one two and three now if you're a parent this is going to make sense to you here uh for just a moment if you're a parent have you ever searched and worked and spent a lot of money and a lot of energy and a lot of effort you wrapped up a present for your child and you hand them that present maybe on their birthday or on on or on christmas morning or something like that and you just holding your breath Just way oh man you're just going to think this is so awesome and they open up the gift and then all they do is play with the box and you're like, oh, no, you missed the point. No, no, no. And then you say, no, here's the present. No, no, play with the present. And they're like, wow, ah, get rid of the present. I want to play with the box. And so when we insist on reading Genesis 1, 2, and 3 and say, you know what? I don't care what the intended purpose is here. I insist it has to be about the details, 21st century scientific details. We are missing the point of the writer's intention. Right? So think about that. All right. Uh, I've been reading a book by Scott Hahn, and he says something. I hear people say this often. All all the creation myths are all completely the same. And I've read some of the creation myths. I haven't read them all. And uh, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 seems to be quite different to me. And so here's what Scott Hahn says about it. The ancient myths all describe the creation process in terms of a war among the gods, with the winners forming the cosmos out of the carcasses of the losers. Likewise, the myths treat the sun, moon, and heavenly bodies as deities. Genesis is clearly cut from different cloth so one of the big problems and we talk about the creation we say oh, okay we got seven days seven 24 hour literal days that doesn't make sense we're going to flash a hebrew word up here behind me and that word is yom that's the word for day it doesn't always refer to clock time now one of the things that ancient people knew you know not as dumb as we thought one thing that they all knew is that time was kept by the sun it's time the sun right so 24 hours we had this sun cycle they knew this right not only are we smart, but they were pretty smart, too. They knew this. Now, what do we do if we insist that what the writer of the Bible, what is God is intending us to know is that each day was a 24-hour cycle? What are we supposed to do with, it with the fact that the sun was not created till the fourth day? It wasn't created till the fourth day. So immediately you have to think, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute. The writer of the Bible, God is intending us to see something else. The Bible is not trying to sell us on 6,000 years. The Bible is not trying to sell us on 7 24-hour literal days. The sun was not created till the 4th day. What's up with that? I'll give you something else. Think about this. The 7th day never ends. Read it. It never ends. We are in like a really long day. Like, the day is not ending. It has no end to it. We're still in that day, that day of rest. Matter of fact, Adam's first work day was rest day, and it's never ended. Whoa. The writer had a different intention for us to look at. Now, I'm going to throw a a, a graph up here real quick, and don't get confused by it. It's actually extraordinarily simple. Here's the thing. You read the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. It says that everything was without form, and it was empty. Remember those two words? Had no form, and was completely empty. Now, look at what's going on. I want you to think about there's an organization going on here. God is putting something together. And why is he putting it together? So what we have is form on the bottom. See that on the bottom? It's formless. There's formlessness. Day one, we get form. We get form to time with day and night. Day two, we have form to space, sea and sky. Day three, we have form to life, land and vegetation. There's a separation. Now go back. Day four. Check this out. So there was no form. Now there's form to day and night. And so there was emptiness. Remember there's emptiness. Now we're going to fill up the emptiness. Now we have the structure. Now let's fill it up. What do you have? Sun, moon, and stars. Day five, we're going to fill up what happened in day two, birds and fish. Day six, we're going to fill up what took place in day three, man and animals. And in each one of these things, days four, five, and six, the sun, moon, stars, birds, fish, man, and animals are meant to rule over the realms that existed below. Do you think that maybe there's a different story that God is trying to get across to us? Rather than a bunch of scientific details. God is not after the how, he's after the why. And it's always going to frustrate us if we say, no, I insist, I have to have the how. Because this is not what the writer is telling us about in Genesis chapter. One, two, and three. You ever seen that movie, Big Fat Greek Wedding? Anybody ever seen that movie, The Big Fat Greek Wedding? Very touching scene at the end. Always, it always strikes me, even though I've seen it many times, I get very emotional about it. So what happens at the very end? So, you know, there's conflict with the father, right? The Greek father, because uh, he, maybe he acts a little obnoxious and stuff like that, but he's a really sweet guy. And so what happens at the very end? They're standing there at the wedding reception, and they, they've given them a gift. They've given the bride and groom a gift. What's the gift? And so the groom opens up. And he says, oh, my gosh, they bought us a house. Now the house is right next to their house, so whatever. But, but, but they bought us a house. They bought us a house. And it always kind of makes me tear up a little bit when I say they bought us a house. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is God telling, I bought you a house. Now, when we bought our house, we bought our first house. It, every dime we went to buying the house. So there was no furniture in it. Okay, like We're sleeping on the floor and there's not a couch in the living room where it was empty. What God is saying is he's bought us all a house and he's put furniture in it. He's bought us all a house. Oh, it's gone. Okay. He bought us all a house and he's put furniture in it. That's the intended meaning of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Aristotle says this. Think about this. What is last in execution is first in intention. We were last, human beings, man and woman, last in execution, first in intention. God built all this for us that we might experience it in a sanctuary with him. He built us a house. Now, God tells them two things, okay? We're only going to focus on one. God says something very important to Adam. He says, I want you to work, which is interesting. God gives Adam a job. God gives Adam a job before he gives him a bride, we could do like a whole sermon about that. We're not going to, right? So gives him a job, right? And, and, then, and then he says this. Here's the thing I want to focus. He says, guard it. Guard it. Keep it. No, the word is strong, everybody. I want you to guard it. I want you to keep. In other words, there's a, there's a threat. There's mortal danger out there. There's a potential intruder to the garden, and your life is at risk. Guard it and guard her. Guard your bride. Protect her protect her she's taken right out of your side protect her protect her there's danger out there protect her this is the commission that Adam was under to protect his bride and to protect the garden because something was very dangerous out there. Why else do you think God put the tree of life in the garden? You have the tree of life that sustains, that will sustain life, right? And the tree of knowledge of good and evil, right? There's two trees and stay away from the the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But why would you give a man who's going to live forever a tree of life? Why does he need it? Right? How, why would I sell somebody a life insurance policy who's going to live forever? What's that about? Think. Think deeper. Think deeper. Go below the surface. Think. Why is that? God is saying, Hey, I want you to guard her. I want you to protect her and protect this garden. And if if you have to lay your life down, trust me, there's a tree that will bring you back to life. There's mortal danger out there. And this is the message that God is getting across to Adam. So, listen to this. Listen to this. Adam... Is there in the garden. Eve has not been created yet. This is really important. God puts Adam to sleep, pierces his side, cuts into his side. His bride is born, and he is commissioned to protect her. And now what does Adam do? What will he do with his life? Will he lay his life down? Now, before I get into what he does... Let's think about this second, because a lot of people ask this question. Why would God allow there to be such a threat? Why would God allow there to be such a potential for mortal danger? Why would God do it? You know why? Because God is training Adam for greatness. Because God is teaching Adam to love. You think about greatness. Remember, a number of, some of you are too young to remember this, but there was a book called The Greatest Generation that was written. Tom Brokaw, remember that book? And people said, why is it that that generation had so many great people after World War II? Why is that? You know why? Because trials and tribulations draw greatness out of people. That's what happens. You look at the founding of this country and you look back at the people that were sitting around that table... Washington and Jefferson and Adams and Franklin and Madison, you say, oh my gosh, how did one generation get such incredible people around the same table? Why? I mean, what's going on with that? You know why? Because trials and tribulations and difficulty draw greatness out. God was training Adam for the greatness that was inside of him. And he was also teaching him how to love. Look, understanding love, you know, the more I live my life, like I used to remember when I was young, I hear people say this all the time, like, you know, puppy love, like in junior high or high school or whatever, college, you know, does he love me? Does she really love me? Like they said they love me, but do they really love? I'm not sure if they love me. Love is so easy now. It's such a piece of cake. I mean, it's so easy to understand if somebody really loves somebody else. First Corinthians chapter 13, it says that God says, I'm going to give you the definition of love because love is patient. The word patient means long suffering. You know how you know if somebody loves somebody else, are they willing to suffer? And then how long are they willing to suffer? Like, you know, God forbid that, you know, some goofy teenage boy would ever say to my daughter, I love you, right? And, and, and she would and say, oh, you know, does he, you know, he really love me? Well, hey, look, we can figure this out. It's really simple. The older you get, in particular. You start having kids and you have a daughter, everything becomes very, very clear. Look, you get a secluded cabin in the woods. You get a couple of your buddies in a $5 pair of pliers. You come back after that weekend. It's like, no, he doesn't love you. (laughs) That's obvious. The boy doesn't love you. (laughs) It only took five minutes. One, and then it was, oh, you know, so it's over. Not that I would do that, but I'm just saying to you. I, I just, I just, I don't want you to think about that, right? Suffering, suffering, some of you know this. Some of you have lived enough life that you understand true love is attached to suffering. You understand that so very well. And God is allowing Adam to be trained for greatness, what is inside of him to be drawn out and teaching him how to really, to really love. Now, uh, the serpent, the silly talking serpent. So it's a Hebrew word and it, that word is "wamo nahash. All right, everybody. Let's get all the cartoonish, all the goofiness out of our heads for a second. Just let it all go. Here's what this word means. This is a, a biting, something that bites, something that bites usually filled with venom and usually causes mortal danger, something that kills. Now, stop thinking about little sweet serpent who comes along and says, Oh, you want some fruit? No. It's not what we're talking about here with this. I want you to think about Jurassic Park. Okay, remember that movie? Y'all remember that scene in that movie where uh, Norm from Seinfeld? Right, it was Norm, right? Norm, the the male guy, right? Right. Norm? You remember he was in that? He was, in, New, Newman, Newman. Yes. Thank you. I don't watch enough TV. But anyway, this guy. okay, okay, Newman. He was in the Jurassic Park, right? Am I right with that? He was in Jurassic Park. You remember that scene where he's in that little Jeep? And that little, I don't know anything about uh, dinosaurs, okay? But it was some kind of dinosaur thing that was in it. It looked all sweet. And then all of a sudden, rah! remember that? And you're like, rah! you freaked out? You scared it? Think that. That's what I'm just saying. If some of you are old enough to remember this. This is what, just what you think about, okay? There was a time in this country when we had this movie called Jaws, Right, and Some of you are like way too... That was cutting edge when Jaws came out. People would not take baths in their bathtub. That, that That's how... There was tremendous... That's what I want you to think about. Not this silly cartoonist stuff. This was a serious threat. There's a serious threat to their lives. And it's the reason God gave them the tree of life. So they would know, Oh, look, if I die, I can trust God about the tree. There's a very, very serious threat that was going on here. Why was Adam silent? You might say, Well, he's a guy. That's what guys just don't talk. Well, that's not true. Because in Genesis chapter 2, we couldn't get Adam to shut up. He was talking all over the place. He was naming every animal was there. He was talking all over the place. And all of a sudden, he's not talking. Why is he talking? You know why he's not talking? He's scared to death. And what's incredibly sad about the scene that we see here, if we'll look a little bit deeper, what's incredibly sad is Adam, who's there the whole time with Eve, while this vicious being, this evil force was threatening their lives, he's hiding behind Eve. And she's doing her best. In a weak way, she's doing her best to contradict and to stand up and to fight the serpent. And the whole time, Adam's standing behind her like this. You know why? He's scared to death. He doesn't want to lay down his life, he's afraid. He's being a coward. God commissioned him to protect, and he doesn't protect. Everybody, this is what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is about. Do we really not believe in the message of Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Are you serious? Are we not inspired by the message of Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3? Do we not? Is it not all over our society everywhere? Do we not cheer it on? Do we not love the message of Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3? And Adam will not protect. And so they're taken down. And this is what the story is about. Genesis 3, 4. So the serpent says, you will not surely die. Now with all of that in your heads, with the understanding of how vicious this force is, and that their life is at, at danger, read between the lines a little bit here. What do you think this evil This evil force is saying to them, don't you think this evil force, right? This evil, evil force is saying to them, you better eat this fruit or you will die. You'll die right now. You better eat this. It's a threat. And Adam cowers. And so Eve eats and Adam follows right in line. Adam is unwilling to lay his life down for his bride. Listen, this is what I want to suggest to you this morning. I want to suggest to you that we say we don't believe in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 and then we walk right back out and everything with every bit in us, we say, I believe in it by my actions. Let's throw a picture up here, okay? Let's throw the picture. Who is this guy? Yeah, Braveheart. 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 What's Braveheart about, everybody? Is it about a guy whose wife was murdered and he gave his life all the way to his death to fight for her honor, and even when it caused him to die a horrific death, what is he screaming at the end? Huh? Who knows what he screams at the end of the movie, right? Freedom! Right. He refuses to take any kind of painkillers. No, he's going to experience all the pain because of honor, because of integrity, because of courage, because of bravery, and we flock to the movie and we applaud when it's over and we watch it not once, not twice, three, four, five times. We can't get enough of it. We love it. Do we believe in what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is selling? Because what it's selling is that. That's what it's selling. It's not selling science. It's selling that. Now, I want to show you a clip. I want to show you a clip, and I really want you to listen closely. And then I want want you to watch. There's a main character in this clip. I want you to watch what the guys around him all of a sudden do after he speaks the words. So listen very closely. Let's roll the clip.
0: You do have a name. My name is Gladiator.
1: How dare you show your back to me? Slave! Will you remove your helmet and tell me your name?
0: My name is Maximus Decimus Meridius. Commander of the armies of the North. General of the Felix Legions loyal servant to the true Emperor Marcus Aurelius father to a murdered son husband to a murdered wife and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next
1: That's Genesis 1, 2, and 3. You hear what he said? Father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will get my vengeance in this life or the la- next. And who is the evil force there? That little weasel. <laughs> right? The little weasel that's there that we all hate. But Gladiator is willing at the cost of his life, at the cost of a horrific death, he is willing to encourage and bravery and sacrifice, lay down his life in honor of his bride and of his family and of his son. And I can't speak for women, but I will speak for men. When men watch that, their hearts start beating faster. When men watch that, they say, You know what? I want to be that guy. <laughs> That's what they say. I want to be that guy. Something rises up as I aspire to that kind of greatness. When I see that, it inspires me. What is that? What is that? God put that in you. That's Genesis 1, 2, and 3 that God put in you. That is what it means to believe in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. That's what it's selling. Honor and integrity. Does honor and integrity and sacrifice and bravery inspire you? Do you get emotional when you go to movies or you hear stories, whether they're fictional or they're real, about people who laid down their lives? You know, I I go to movies like that, Braveheart, Gladiator, Saving Private Ryan, and I walk out, and I walked out of Saving Private Ryan and nobody spoke. It was like holy ground, right? Captain Miller lays down his life, sacrifices for somebody else. You just want to applaud. You want to say, wow, that's incredible. I want, you to, I want you to write this in as the last fill in the blank. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is what we aspire to be. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is what we aspire to be. This is all over the place. It's in our movies. It's in our novels. It's in our stories. My question is, do you really not believe in Genesis 1, 2, and 3? Maybe you say you don't, but do your actions show that you do? Your friend, your loved one, your coworker ah, it's a bunch of myth. Really? Is it really? Why are you going to the movies? Why is your heart beating faster? Why are you crying? Why are you inspired? Why? Because it's in you. Now I have a parting shot for you. One thing. Remember what we said a few minutes ago about Adam? Adam Adam uh, is put to sleep. His side cut open. His bride is born. He's told, be willing to lay down your life and protect her at the risk of your own life, in the face of tremendous danger, lay down your life and protect your bride. And he refuses to lay down his life to protect his bride. Now, the entire Bible, everybody, hear me on this, the entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. The entire Bible is about Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, in the face, in the face of the most horrific Death sentence that you could ever possibly receive when he was walking this earth. In the face of it, he is hung on a cross. And what happens when he's hung on a cross? What happens with the spear? To where? To the side where he's pierced. And what happens? His bride is born. His bride is born as his side is slit open. And he says, I will lay my life down to protect all of you. I will not walk away. I will not cower in the shadows. I will step up. I'll step out front and I will protect and I'll lay my life down. You know what? The Bible is absolutely brilliant, everybody. This is the story of the Bible. It's a story of courage, of love, of sacrifice, and of bravery. And that's the covenant. And that's the covenant God is offering you. Will you respond to that? You know, when I read this and I put all the pieces of the puzzle... It's just like when I walk out of an incredible movie, I say, whoa, I'm in awe. And sometimes I'm really quiet, and sometimes I just want to say, man, that is awesome. Do you feel that way? When you hear that, when you see that, when you put the piece of the puzzle together, do you want to just applaud God and say, way to go, God? I want to do that. Will you applaud with me? It's phenomenal, brilliant story. Way to go, God. It's awesome. All for you and me. Now, we ended last week, and this is how we're going to end this week. We said, you know, you exercise the covenant through your words. You speak it. For some of you this morning, I mean, you just it's, it's, it's just welling up in you. You just want to say, oh, God, I just profess you Jesus Christ is my Savior. Some of you have done that many times, and you, just, you feel like you've got to say it again. That's the Spirit of God working in you, inspired by Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Some of you have never done that before, but you want to do it. You want to do it. Romans chapter 10 talks about it. Like it's come up out of your heart and it's all the way in your mouth and you just want to speak it out. And we're going to do that together. Others of you, like you're not there. You're not here. And that's totally cool. We're going to pray all this out together. And I don't want for you for a second to feel awkward about this. We are not the kind of church that makes somebody feel awkward or pressured for where you believe right now. We think this is wonderful wherever you are. But for those of you who have entered the covenant or those of you who feel like, you know what, I've got to cross that line. I've got to just speak it out and say, Jesus Christ, you're awesome. You are Lord. I put a prayer. It's here on the screen behind me or it's on the bulletin. And I, I just wanted us again this week to experience this together of speaking out what's in our hearts so that we wouldn't walk away and miss this moment. So would you, would you just belt it out and pray, pray this with me? Okay. Jesus, we confess that You are Lord of our lives and we place our faith in You. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just want to ask that You would just help each one of us to thoroughly understand the covenant that You're offering us and that we would respond in a way, God, that You want us to respond. We would respond God, the inside of us. We sense this when we watch these movies that are a retelling of the story of the garden. We are moved and inspired. God, help us to respond to the instincts that you put inside of us that we would confess you, Jesus is Lord, and we would exercise the covenant. We would live it out every day of our lives. Lord, I ask your blessing over every single person that's here today. In Christ's holy name, amen. Amen. Everybody, I just want to tell you, our prayer team is right over here. We'd love to pray with you. And if you're a guest, Grace in 5 is right over here. God bless you. Have a great day.
0: Thanks for listening to this week's message. Grace Community Church, a church for people who don't go to church, meets on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. in Arlington, Virginia. Connect with us anytime at trygrace.org.